listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. kid, my parents drove us to a new car lot. Me and my brother stayed in the car while my parents got out and looked around and talked. And so me and my brother were goofing off and my brother flipped over the front seat. And when he flipped over the front seat, his foot hit the gear shift lever through the car into neutral. We were parked on a hill. And so we started going backwards on this new car parking lot. My brother, always, forever, finding solutions to whatever problems there are, jumps up in the driver's seat, starts turning the wheel, and our car is about to back into a new car on the lot. And that would have been tragic on our budget. Now, you may be here and say, why would you tell that story, number one? But number two, some of you here are saying, wait a minute. You can't move the gear shift lever unless you've turned the switch on in the car. So I really question what you're saying this morning. Maybe you're making that up. Well, let me just let you in on a couple of things. Number one, cars back then don't work like cars now. Now, some of you are grabbing your phone. You're Googling it, right? But in 1965, you didn't have to turn the switch on to get the car in neutral. You could just throw it in neutral any old time. The second thing I want you to know is this. I was there. You weren't. Okay? And I'm giving you an eyewitness account of something that I experienced that I can verify if you want to look up a 1962 Oldsmobile and see how the gear shift lever worked. As we look at the text of Scripture today, none of us has been there. But we're talking to people that have. Luke has gone to great lengths to make sure that Theophilus, who is reading, understands the certainty, the validity, the reality, the truthfulness of the things that Theophilus has been taught. In other words, Theophilus, I'm telling you some things that people who were there experienced, and I want you to believe in the things that they experienced them at just as though you experienced it. When we come to Luke 24, we're looking at people who flipped over the front seat and threw the car in the neutral and rolled down the hill, and they're now telling us about it. We're talking to people who literally saw and experienced Jesus Christ, and that's important because none of us was there. But are we going to believe somebody who was, or are we going to try to find exceptions because, well, we just didn't see it? Can we trust anybody else? Can we believe anybody else? Can we trust and believe the Word of God? In Luke 24, I just titled this message, The Resurrection, and it breaks down three ways for what I want to talk with you about um, this morning. First of all, I want you to look at verses 1 to 12, and here's what we're going to see in verses 1 to 12. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is unbelievable, yet undeniable. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is unbelievable, yet undeniable. Look at the text. Notice it bounces back and forth. There are those who can't believe it, but there are those who can't deny it. 
beginning in verse 1. I love Luke 24. This is, to me, the, mo the most beautiful chapter in all of the Bible. And the first word is, is but. Jesus is dead. Jesus is in the tomb. They're going to put spices on his body. They know that he's not coming back to life. They don't want him to stink. Everybody's sad. Everybody's given up. All of their hope is gone. But we come to Luke 24, and the first word is but. In contrast to, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, at the crack of dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. Why had they taken spices that they had prepared? Because they thought Jesus was still in the tomb, dead three days later. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's a great question that we need to constantly ask. Why are we constantly looking for life and death? Why are we constantly trying to extract life out of things that are not life-giving? Right? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But, verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and I'm guessing reluctantly, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. It's interesting that he found the linen cloths lying there. You say, what's the deal about the linen cloths? If you're going to steal a body from a tomb, I doubt you would unwrap him to walk off with him, right? One of the rumors was Jesus' body was stolen. He didn't rise from the dead. Why in the world would you unwrap a body that you were going to steal when they found the linen cloth just lying there? Let me, let me just share a, a few things from the text that we've just read. First of all, we see the spices and the stone. They, they, they found the stone rolled away, but the, 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 they also did not find the body wrapped in these grave cloths kind of mummified, wrapped around like gauze, wrapped around the body of Jesus. They found the stone rolled away, but they didn't find the body. The text points that out. Secondly, the perplexed women and the simple explanation is this. The women get there, the body's not there, they're perplexed. So they're like wondering what's going on. They still think Jesus is dead. The resurrection is unbelievable, right? It's unbelievable, so they're perplexed. We're expecting to find a dead Jesus in this tomb. But the question is, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Jesus Christ said he was going to rise from the dead. Jesus Christ said there was going to be resurrection. But you guys didn't believe what Jesus said. And you keep coming back to the graveyard looking for a dead man in a tomb to put some spices on. But he's alive. Why are you seeking the living among the dead, why are you seeking life in death? The, the greatest problems that we face in life is that we don't go to the source of life to find life. 
Uh, all of the problems, just all you have to do is listen. All you have to do is look inside your heart and look at all of the struggles that are going on with you. And the things that the world tells us, the thing that the enemy tells us are life. Don't give life. They create misery. Life is found in Christ alone. And there is something about the resurrection that, that is a quality, a type of life that you and I as believers, if we are believers, are supposed to experience. It is a resurrection life. It is a force. It is a power. It is a life energy that is within the interior world of the believer. And so he's saying, why are you who are looking for someone that you think is dead, who is alive? You're not going to find life in death, and you're not going to find the living Christ in the graveyard. He rose from the grave. He is alive. And, and he said, remember, and he's asking them to remember Luke 9, verses 1 to 22, where Jesus said, this is exactly what's going to happen, and they didn't hear it. And, and then in, in Luke 18, we see it again in verses 31 to 34. They, they didn't remember. Nobody seemed to listen to what Jesus said they had their own ideas about who Jesus was. They had their own ideas about the kingdom of heaven. They had their own ideas about how Jesus' kingdom was going to be established. But the text tells us now, finally, when they see an empty tomb and when they hear this angel give an explanation, then they remember what Jesus said. Thirdly, we see the spices in the stone. We see the perplexed women and the simple explanation, why seek ye the living among the dead? But then we see in these first 12 verses the faithful witnesses and the faithless apostles. Uh, history records for us uh, uh, the specific names of women who uh, saw and understood and believed in the resurrected Christ, and these women are now going and bear, bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ to the apostles. You say, why is that significant? It's significant because if you were writing a story to try to convince people about a truth, the last thing that you would do if you were fabricating a story about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is use women as the primary witnesses to his resurrection. A woman couldn't testify in court. If you were going to have any credibility in this culture, you couldn't use a woman to verify anything. And if, so if you're, if you're fabricating something, the last thing you would do is have women verify something as important as the resurrection. But the writer of Scripture, Luke, is writing this, and he's giving us this account, and he's giving it to us in living color. He's not making anything up. He's not fabricating anything. These people were there. They flipped over the front seat and hit the gear shift lever into neutral, and the car rolled backwards. They were there. They experienced it. And Luke mentions their name. Why would Luke, the historian, why would Luke, the physician, want to do this? Go talk to these people if you don't believe me, Luke was said. This really happened. And they go to the apostles and the apostles. And this, is, this is interesting, these guys that spent all of this time with Jesus, but these words seem to them an idle tale. You're making this up. This can't be true. Jesus told them, this is what's going to happen. And they're like, this can't be true. Jesus is dead, and Jesus is going to stay dead, and we are defeated. And so we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unbelievable yet undeniable. The, the, the second thing I want you to see, and this is in verses 13 to 43, is this. The resurrection is, of Jesus Christ is unbelievable to those who will not believe and undeniable to those who do. You may be here and say, I'll tell you what, I, I've, you know, 
I, I did not flip over and hit the gear shift lever and the car and, and feel the car roll backwards. So I don't believe that anybody flipped over, hit the gear shift lever, and the car really rolled backwards. I don't believe that. You, you may say, I, I hear all of this talk, but you know, there are a lot of voices in the culture. I mean, you can go to TikTok and watch a 45-minute video, and they completely undermine uh, 66 books of the Bible and, and you know, 5,000 years of human history and the writing of 1,500 authors or, or 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years to compile the scriptures. And all of a sudden now we don't believe this, but we believe a 45-second TikTok video that says, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning that as we look at the text and understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unbelievable to those who will not believe. And there's nothing that I can say to you. There's nothing that I can bring as far as a witness is concerned. But these are witnesses and these are people that are jostling with the same ideas and thoughts that you are struggling with this morning. But let me read the text. And what you see is, is the unbelievability of the resurrection and the believability of the resurrection. Verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. Again, details, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Luke is a details guy. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, literally they were doing more than talking. They were arguing. They were debating. Um, they were, the, the, the word there in the text indicates that they're throwing uh, concepts back at each other in an argumentative fashion. Well, what about this? And what about this? Now, my speculation is this, looking at what Jesus says to them later on. My speculation is that they're talking about Scripture as it relates to Messiah. And they're wondering what happened to Jesus because the, the Messiah was supposed to come and the Messiah was supposed to rule and the Messiah was supposed to reign and the Messiah was supposed to overthrow Rome and there is supposed to be this glorious kingdom and, and the, 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 the people of God were going to enter into this kingdom and finally be victorious. I think that they were bantering back and forth with Scripture about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this is a tense conversation that these two people are Having. Verse 15, and while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. These guys are down. It is dark. They are discouraged. They feel defeated. They're profoundly bold in that they're going to have a conversation with a man that they don't recognize. But what you and I need to understand is that Jesus, the text makes it very clear, came near to them. I believe that was physical proximity, which is comforting to you and me. In our darkest hour, when we're doubting and we're trying to figure things out, Jesus comes near. He shows up. Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We see that concept over and over again. There, there's a place where their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and then there's a place where their eyes are open, and then there's a place where their minds are open. So the Spirit is doing a work in opening eyes and opening minds. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. They stopped in their tracks. They just stopped. They probably looked at each other like, who, and, who is this guy? Here's, here's the guy, by the way, that knows everything, and they're thinking he's probably the biggest idiot in all of Israel. In fact, l listen, listen to what they said to Jesus. What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleo Cleophas answered him, 
Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Folks, listen. This was not an isolated event. This is not some folks that want to start a religion and deceive the world. This is something that everybody in this region knew about. Are you the only one, the only visitor, the only person that doesn't understand? Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back say, saying that they, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, but, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. They probably remembered some of the things that the prophets had spoken. They probably were having this conversation about what the prophets had spoken, but they didn't incorporate everything that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary, according to all of Scripture, that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, beginning with Genesis and the prophets, throughout Scripture, he interpreted to them all the, in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. In the very simple uh, sharing of a meal. Our Lord in simplicity reveals himself to these men. As soon as they recognized him, they couldn't recognize him to begin with. Now they recognize him because their eyes were open and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought he saw a spirit. Any of us would, have, would be startled and frightened if somebody came in the room and didn't use the door. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me. Jesus is not just some spirit. He's not a figment of their imagination. He, he's he's uh, not just a spirit that floated in. He's not a ghost. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? A spirit's not going to eat anything. He's proving to them that this is the 
literal resurrected body of Jesus Christ. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. I don't know why they had to put broiled there, why they couldn't have put fried fish there. but um, And they took it, and he took it and ate it before them. So what do we see here in this lengthy text um, as we go from verses um, 13 to 43? First of all, we see the conversation. And I've already mentioned in verses 13 to 19, they're arguing and they're disputing. And they're probably arguing and disputing um, I would guess um, Old Testament scriptures regarding Messiah. And I don't have verification for that. I'm just basing it on the reaction of Jesus. The, the interesting thing is this, that they gave this glowing affirmation of who Jesus was. They mentioned his power in verse number 19. They mentioned the guilt of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the rulers in verse 20. They mentioned the shattering of their hope for Israel, and this was shattering for them. They grew up. They lived their life looking forward to Messiah. That's what they looked forward to. They got up every morning in their, their prayers and every evening in their prayers and their study of Scripture. They didn't have all of the distractions and the entertainment and the things that we think we can't leave this world for. They're affirming the shattering of their hope. Um, and, and we also see in the text the ho-hum response, their ho-hum response to the, the resurrection in verses 22 to 24. They were not convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead until they get here and see Jesus literally in the text that we just read. And at the same time, they were, unash they were not unashamed. They were unashamed to identify with Christ and his promises to a stranger. So, so this, is, this is really interesting. They're, they're questioning, they're wondering, they're thinking maybe Scripture wasn't fulfilled. They haven't taken all the Scripture into consideration. Uh, they're, they're talking to Jesus, and they're explaining all of these things about the, the identity, the character of Jesus Christ, the things that he did, and how everything pointed to the fact that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And then they talked about the sadness in their heart where Jesus is now dead, and their hope is gone, and they're wondering if the resurrection is even true, and questioning the witnesses that have already confirmed the, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus Christ, but at the same time, there's something in them that says, I am willing to unashamedly share the truth about who I believed Jesus was with a complete stranger, which was a very dangerous thing to do probably at this time in history. So something confusing was going on here in their heart and in their soul as they affirmed who Christ was. Because you see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unbelievable, yet it is undeniable. And it is unbelievable to those who will not believe, and it is undeniable to those who do believe. And they're standing somewhere between those two realities. Where are you today? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because, listen to me, the life that your heart longs for, the love that your heart longs for, the joy that your heart longs for, is only found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is only found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is only found in a relationship with Jesus who lived the perfect life that we could not live, who died the death that we deserve to die, and who rose victorious over an enemy that we cannot defeat. It's being in relationship with him. Can, can, I, can I just be honest with you? There's a, there's a lot of angry Christians. There's just a lot of angry Christians. There's a lot of frustrated Christians. 
There's, there, we sit in this room today and we think of the stuff that aggravates us, the stuff that agitates us, the stuff that nobody around us can get right, the stuff that we can't get right. We're projecting shame on others. We're feeling shame on ourselves. We talked about Christ bearing our shame and leaving it in the grave. But yet somehow we think we're going to heaven because we give intellectual or, or mental assent to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But many times we have never experienced the reality of the life of the resurrected Christ. And so, so here we are, and these men got the facts right, and they're even willing to risk their life for it, but they truly don't understand the resurrection. And then Jesus moves in, and he begins to interpret. And he's going to interpret the resurrection in light of all of Scripture. Scripture says Jesus drew near to them. He was with them. He was present, he was curious, he was interested, he was relational and, and drawing near. His, his first words were words of rebuke, right? I mean, look at the words of Jesus, if you will. Let me turn back there in the text. And Jesus says in verse 25, Oh, and he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is now going to interpret this for them. But he begins by re rebuking them. They were trying to use proof texts about Messiah to answer the questions. And they were getting it wrong. Uh, what, what scripture, scripture about a suffering Messiah, they needed to understand that. And they were, listen to me, they were tripping up on the prosperity gospel. Right? Their gospel was a, was, was a gospel where everything goes well. It was not a gospel that included suffering. And their Messiah was a Messiah who came in flexing his muscles. He's, was, he was a Messiah that didn't have any gray hair or wrinkles. He didn't have any flaws. He was a Messiah that was perfect. He was a Messiah that nobody could handcuff, nobody could subdue, nobody could put in the back of a cop car, nobody could put in jail, nobody could take and lead him along and whip him. You couldn't beat their Messiah. You couldn't hang their Messiah on a cross. So they're like, this man can't be Messiah because their Messiah was the prosperity Messiah. Jesus begins by telling them the real Messiah is not a prosperity Messiah, the real Messiah, according to Scripture, is going to suffer. I would imagine Jesus went to Genesis 3.15, where he talks about this victorious man who has his heel bruised by the serpent. His heel is crushed by the serpent, but his, he crushes the serpent with his heel. The serpent is crushed. This is this victorious man who first suffers, beginning right there in Genesis 3, 15, before he experiences victory. Or you can go to Leviticus 16, where the scriptures talk about the Day of Atonement. And I would imagine Jesus went to the Day of, of Atonement, and there were, there were two goats there um, um, in, on the Day of Atonement. And on one, go one goat was slaughtered, one goat was killed, one goat was payment for the sins of those that are represented by this goat. A another goat 
uh, the hands of the priest is placed on the head of the goat and the goat is sent out into the wilderness after the sins of the people are symbolically put on the goat and the goat goes and disappears because when our sins are forgiven they are as far as the east is from the west but I would imagine that Jesus took them to the day of atonement where there was this suffering of this substitute who was standing in the place of the sinners. That's not inconsistent with what we read in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. They didn't understand that Messiah was going to suffer. Maybe he took them to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and he told them that there was going to be a prophet to rise up like Moses, but he also took them to places in the Pentateuch where Moses, even in the beginning of Exodus in chapter 2, was rejected, or in Numbers chapter 14 where Moses as a leader was rejected and they had to understand that this prophet that is raised up like Moses is going to be one who is Rejected. We see all throughout the book of Isaiah, and just let me share some texts that Jesus probably went to went to um, for them and with them. He says in forty nine four of Isaiah, but I said I have labored in vain. I have sent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my, my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. So here is one who is a suffering servant who is giving up and pouring out his strength. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse number 6, maybe Jesus took them there. I give my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is the price that is paid for our sin by the Lord Jesus Christ through his death that preceded his resurrection that they didn't understand. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9 where Messiah comes in on a, a, a donkey and on and on we go with this understanding of the humility of Messiah. You see, the, the bottom line is this. When Jesus took them to the scriptures, he was correcting a gross misconception. They needed to understand that Messiah's suffering had to precede his glory and that is exactly what Jesus is saying to them in verse number 26 was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and he began with Moses and the prophets and interpreted to them all the things of all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself I want to read a quote and it's a it's a, a, a paragraph long quote by um, by uh, Dale Ralph Davis. Um, listen to him. I, I love the way he puts this. And he's talking about what's happening here, but I want you to think about it in your own personal life. I want you to think about suffering in your own personal life. I, think, I want you to think about internal struggle in your own personal life. Listen, listen to what um, Davis said in his, his uh, brief commentary on, on the Gospel of Luke. He said, for our benefit, I think we should pay attention to Jesus' method here. At this point, it is more crucial for these two disciples to hear Christ than to see him. Jesus could have disclosed himself with an ungrammatical, it's me, fellas, but Jesus didn't give them a neat experience. He rubbed their noses in the scriptures. You must not merely get relief. 
you must understand Jesus. Did you hear that? We want relief. I don't know, listen to me, I don't know that we want Jesus. I just think we want relief. He walks in, they're sad, they stop, they look, they're perplexed. Why didn't Jesus in that moment say, yo guys, it's me. Throws back the hoodie. They see his face. Their eyes are open. Don't worry, fellas. Everything's okay. Everything is beautiful. I'm alive. He didn't do that. Jesus didn't give them a neat experience. He rubbed their noses in the scriptures. You must not merely get relief. You must understand Jesus. You must grasp what sort of Messiah he is. And you will not understand Jesus unless you go to the scriptures. Otherwise, you'll be making, you'll, you'll be making him something he's not. Here, Jesus thought... Here, Jesus thought learning Christ was more urgent than eliminating sorrow. Do you hear that? Jesus thought in this circumstance that knowing him was more important than eliminating sorrow. We usually prefer an instant solution for Jesus to lift the sadness, clear up the perplexity, while more than that, he wants us to know him. He doesn't just want us to feel better. He wants us to know him. We live, in a, we live in a therapeutic age where everybody just wants to feel better. And, and quite frankly, we'll do just about anything to feel better. Right? I mean, we'll drink anything. We'll smoke anything. We just want to feel better. We just want to feel better. And you miss it. You miss it when you miss Christ because you're looking for life in death when Christ alone is life. So how will Jesus often receive you? Not by some mystical experience, but by dragging you into the scriptures. And the point of the scriptures it's not so that you will know the scriptures, but so that you will know him. Not so that you can say, the Bible says there's resurrection, therefore I believe in resurrection. No, that's not enough. You must experience resurrection life. Jesus made it clear in John 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. The life that I now live, there is this there is this quality, this power, this reality of life that transforms everything about us. And then the end of this second section that we're looking at, we see the revelation, and that's in verses 31 to 43. And here's what Jesus did by way of revelation. And there are just, just four things we see. Number one, Jesus revealed himself spiritually. Something happened inside of them. Their eyes were open. Jesus is right in front of them physically, but they couldn't see him. So there is this spiritual revelation of Jesus Christ whereby he does something in the heart. He does something in the mind. He opens the eyes, and then we can see him. I had a conversation with a brother this week, and uh, 
I kept asking him, who have you been reading? You know, what, who have you been listening to? He said, I've just been reading my Bible. He said, and while I was reading my Bible, the Lord opened my eyes. And I stopped and I thought, I'm sitting here and this guy, doesn't, he, doesn't know, he doesn't know who all of the famous people we know. And he hadn't read, read Wayne, Wayne Grudem or any other systematic theology. And he, he, he's just been reading his Bible. And Jesus <laughs> opened his eyes. That's the way it works. And I just thought, I'm sitting here in, a, I'm sitting here in front of Ingalls <laughs> experiencing a miracle. I was so excited. Because I saw the hand of God work through his word to transform the heart of a person by the power of the resurrected Christ. Jesus, Jesus reveals himself spiritually. Jesus reveals himself in simplicity. Just sitting down over a meal. Guys, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. Many times we have to get over church before we can get to Jesus. You hear me? Many times we got to get over church before we can get to Jesus because we've got so we've got so many things in, involved that we feel like that is is church when the, the church is the most simple thing I believe on the face of the planet, and people ought to walk in where we are gathered and experience something that is profoundly simple because we are resting in a life force that is not our own. We're not trying to generate something; it is a power that has been generated through us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there is, there is spiritual revelation, there is revelation in simple things like eating a common meal, something that somebody does three times a day. He reveals himself in the community. Jesus pops right in. There are a group of people gathered, and while they are gathered there, he shows up in the midst of them, inhabiting the praises and the wondering and the doubts and bringing certainty to those who are struggling. And Jesus reveals himself physically. Jesus wanted them to know and wants us to know that, that this was the resurrected Christ who was dead and died for sin. And if he did not die graveyard dead and pay for your sin and my sin and bear the full fury of God's wrath for sin, if he didn't do that, you and I are still in our sin and we have no hope. But he did. And he physically is alive. The third thing I want you to see, the first thing is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unbelievable yet undeniable. Secondly, the same thing essentially, but that's what's in the text. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is unbelievable to those who will not believe and undeniable to those who do believe. And then thirdly, if you experience the resurrection, it changes everything. This is what we see in the text. If you experience the resurrection, it changes everything. Listen to me. If your life has not been radically transformed by what you call your belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have never experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're, 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 you're believing something that somebody has told you that has never gotten out of your head and into your heart. If you experience the resurrection, it changes everything. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Why, why, does, why does Luke keep doing that? Because this stuff was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And there are things that were fulfilled, and there are things that will be fulfilled. 
he's lifting up the text of Scripture as authority. And if you want to question what Jesus is saying, you can go back to things that have already been written and proved over and over and over again. You say, I, I don't believe it. I don't believe in the resurrection. I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Well, you're looking at, you're looking at history written down over thousands of years that has been verified over and over and over again. And so you're looking at fact in the face and saying, I don't believe it. He's reminding them this all goes back to my word. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Lord, open our minds today. Open our minds today. Open our hearts today. I pray that this would just make so much sense to you today. I, I, I long to just gather with the saints who would have everything that's going on in their life absorbed into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If our, if our minds have been opened, then it changes everything we see and everything we experience and everything we feel because something has happened inside of us that is radically transformed. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Acts 1.8 tells us that. The Spirit comes and we are witnesses. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. I'm sending the Spirit over in Acts 2. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power. So there is a life force that is coming that is going to enter them, that is going to be real, that will literally flow out of them. You can check out Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. That is the life of Christ, the character of Christ, so embedded and intertwined in the inner workings of a believer that it flows out of them. Love, joy, peace, right? Verse 50, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. If you experience the resurrection, it changes everything. First of all, Scripture becomes the authority for your life, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Knowing, loving, relating, hoping in Him, bringing Him glory, putting Him and His good news on display and how we relate and how we communicate and how we live. The, 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 the Scriptures and the power of God's Word and the power of God's presence and the life of the believer is now going to be something that is flowing out of me constantly everywhere I go. I'm going to be going into the world proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Scripture becomes the authority for my life. Secondly, the gospel comes this, becomes the center of our life. The death, burial, and resurrection becomes the lens that we look through for self Identity. He lived. He fulfilled all righteousness. He has declared me perfectly righteous. The, the enemy is going to constantly attack my identity in Jesus Christ. The enemy is going to constantly remind me of my sin and my shame and convince me to forget the sufficiency of his sacrifice and his death. The enemy is going to compel me to be self-righteous, 
or have a low view of grace. To have a warped view of grace that leaves me in my sin. The enemy, enemy will keep me defeated and languishing spiritually. Will dull my senses to the victory that is mine through the resurrection. The hope that is mine because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a struggle. I don't always view my life through the lens of the gospel. But this is what he's telling us. This is a struggle for me. I, I, I struggle with it. I struggle. I, I, try to, I, try to, I try to pray last night and I would go to... I would go to shame. You say, what is, what is shame? It's where you don't feel good enough, where you feel like somebody's against you. Right? That's what shame is. And, and I, I want to be honest with you. I, then I have these internal conversations because I assume this is what somebody thinks or this is what somebody's going to say or this is some kind of altercation I'm going to get into. And you've got to be ready to have an answer because you've got to self-justify. And so I'm, I'm living in this place where all of these, does, does anybody else have, now I'm not talking about literal voices, but you've got these conversations that are just swirling around in your head all the time. Anybody? And, and they're never, they're, ne- they're rarely real, but they're imagined, but you've got to be ready just in case. But they come from a place of shame where the enemy comes to me and reminds me of where I failed or reminds me of where I've sinned and he wants to drudge it up and he wants to drag it up. And and then I imagine having these conversations and then rather than thanking somebody for loving me enough to point out sin in my life, I then go to this place of self-justification. I'm right, whether it's with my wife or with my kids or with anybody else. And that is a complete denial of the finished work of Jesus Christ because I am not who you say I am and I'm not who the enemy says that I am. I am who Christ says that I am and I've got to move the gospel to the center of my life. I was trying to drive over here this morning and I was just trying to talk to the Lord and I was saying, Lord, what do you want to happen today at this gathering? And I I got into a conversation. Just trying to prove something, trying to justify something. Uh, I know half of you are going to be gone next week. Nobody talks like this. It is, it is not easy to move the gospel to the center of our lives, but I'm telling you that because of the resurrection, we can move the gospel to the center of our lives, and we need to get all of this other junk that occupies the center of our lives out of the center of our lives, and we need to bring into that the fact that Christ lived the perfect life I could not live, therefore he calls me perfectly righteous. He died the, the, the death that I deserve to die in my place for my sin, therefore I don't have to live in my sin, but I can be free from my sin, and I'm never going to be penalized for my sin. I'm never going to be judged for my sin because I'm perfectly righteous in Christ and Jesus rose victorious over an enemy that I could not defeat. So I don't have to worry about the future. It is already bought and paid for. Now I need to be filled with the Spirit and live out of His resurrected energy. Thirdly, I now order my life and my decisions and my resources around the mission of God. This is exactly what these guys did. They ordered their life and their decisions and their resources around the mission of God. How do we get the gospel to the world? This is where we live. Let me just, let me just read this final thing. I'm not reading what somebody else wrote. I wrote it myself, but in the interest of screaming babies in the nursery, let me hasten. We are not here for a house or a car. We are not here to be entertained. We are not here to find pleasure and enjoyment. We're not here for the Braves or the Hawks or the Falcons. And perhaps bordering on blasphemy, even the Bulldogs. We are not here to feel better. We are not here for better marriages or better sex. 
We are not here to be like the world or to love the world. We are not here to be disruptive or divisive. We are not here to get our feelings hurt every time something doesn't go our way. We're not here to perform or impress. We're not here. We are here to be filled with the real and powerful and life-changing Spirit of God. He is alive. He is a life force. He provides a presence and a power in the life of the believer that is called fruit that compels us to relate and cooperate. And when that spirit comes and dwells in us, we become witnesses. And we can't contain it. He isn't telling us to tell our spouse or children. He isn't telling us to go up to some building on Sunday and tell it and have people from our life group over to tell them about it. He isn't telling us to go to lunch today with the same old friends to the same old watering hole and tell the same old stories. That isn't what the resurrection life does when it takes up residence in us. There's something about resurrection life once it's swirling around in the heart and mind of someone who has experienced it that says, I want to go and I want to tell. I want to go everywhere I can at great cost to myself and even give up my life. Why? Because there is supernatural life in my bones. There is supernatural fire burning in my heart, and it has been unleashed in my brain, and it's running through my vocal cords, and I have to say something. I have to sing something. And it's running through my legs, and I got to get up and walk around and tell somebody. And if that isn't you, you're lost. You can't even spell resurrection. And so I would just challenge you this morning to understand where the resurrection belongs in your life and how the resurrection power flows out of your life. And I'm looking at what Jesus said because of his resurrected life and his resurrection power. And I see the life of these people. And we must stop justifying ourselves and making excuses for why our lives don't look like this too. Finally, finally we worship. Scripture becomes the authority. The gospel becomes the center. I order my life around the decisions I order my life and decisions and resources around the mission of God. And then finally, we worship. That's what we see in verses 50 to 53. They worshiped internally. He blessed them, parted from them, and they worshiped him. They worshiped internally. There was something inside of them that said, because this is the resurrected Lord, I just got to worship. Just got to worship. They worshiped relationally. They got together. They worshiped communally. They were at the temple. Life together was based on the internal transformation of Jesus Christ that was absolutely contagious. We call it the resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because you've listened to the text of Scripture and you just find it, quite frankly, unbelievable? Or do you not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because... You don't want to bow down and serve somebody else. You want to go to Genesis 3 and be like God, determining what is right and wrong. If you want to be God, 
then Jesus isn't, and you don't believe in the resurrection. But I want to tell you this morning that the resurrection is true, and there is a life force that you will never find anywhere else. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Why seek ye life in things that give death? If the resurrection isn't true, what do you believe? What happens when you die? I listened to Tim Keller preaching on Luke 24 this week, and, and, and Keller said, people say, oh, I just die. When I die, I die. And, and they, he was talking about all of these different things people say about death, and, and here's what he said, and I thought, it was, I thought it was so profound. He said, nobody believes that. Nobody. Everybody's scared of death. Nobody believes that there's nothing after death. Nobody believes that when you die, you just die. How has the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed your life? How has it changed your life internally? How has it changed your life practically? How has it changed your life relationally? How have we complicated Christianity? How can we recover its simplicity? And then finally, are you a Christian? Have you deceived yourself? Is the life that you're experiencing right now just like everybody else's life in the world? Or are you experiencing resurrection life? And I'm offering to you this morning on the authority of the Word of God and on the authority of the resurrected Lord, I'm offering to you a life that you were created to experience and live. And it is a life like no other. And you can experience it by simply Trusting in Christ and Christ alone. He came and he lived and he died and he rose again. I compel you today not to believe in churchianity and stop speaking Christianese. I compel you today to run to Christ. Ask him to fill your life and experience the joy of his energy ruminating through you. His presence living in you and his life flowing 